48 is uh, sort of a tri- um, part of a trio of Psalms, 46, 47, and 48, that um, deal with the, the reign of God and the refuge that God's people have in Him. Psalm 48 uh, is um, picking up some themes that we saw in Psalm 46, back when we looked at that, um, about the city of God, where God dwells, and God uh, protects His people there and, and makes His people glad there. And tonight we'll be looking at that as we look at the glory of the church in Psalm 48. Let's give our attention to God's word. Psalm 48, verse 1. Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised in the city of our God. His holy mountain, beautiful in elevation, is the joy of all the earth. Mount Zion in the far north, the city of the great king. Within her citadels, God has made himself known as a fortress. For behold, the kings assembled, they came on together. As soon as they saw it, they were astounded, they were in panic, they took to flight. Trembling took hold of them there, anguish as of a woman in labor. By the east wind you shattered the ships of Tarshish. As we have heard, so have we seen in the city of the Lord of hosts, in the city of our God, which God will establish forever." We have thought on your steadfast love, O God, in the midst of your temple. As your name, O God, so your praise reaches to the ends of the earth. Your right hand is filled with righteousness. Let Mount Zion be glad. Let the daughters of Judah rejoice because of your judgments. Walk about Zion. Go around her. Number her towers. Consider well her ramparts. Go through her citadels. That you may tell the next generation that this is God, our God, forever and ever. He will guide us forever. Let's ask the Lord to bless his word. God in heaven, we thank you that we have these inspired words. And we thank you that the Spirit has a purpose for these words tonight. And so, Lord, we, we ask that you would accomplish that purpose. Thank you that our weakness is no match for your strength. I pray, Lord God, that you would inform our minds and hearts and emotions and wills um, according to your truth and your beauty and goodness as, as we study these words together. In Jesus' name, amen. I'm finding that um, as the years go by, and they do, they do go by, um, I'm finding that as I, I think about, I'm going to sound really old here, I think about um, childhood more often. Um, and uh, when I think about uh, being a boy, uh, I think about the farm, of course, and uh, uh, family, extended family, but, but uh, one of the things that uh, comes to mind that formed uh, my youth maybe as much or more than anything was the church. Um, Coopersville Christian Forum Church is where we would be found every Sunday morning and every Sunday evening. Uh, evenings just like this, though maybe a little, we'd have service a little later. But I just remember uh, Sunday after Sunday, that's where we would be. And, um, and I don't remember um, it always being riveting. In fact, I remember it often being um, tedious for an energetic young guy. Uh, but somehow I knew it was really important. I remember being maybe 10, 11 years old, um, standing outside of uh, back in the in, in the 
the, the farmyard uh, Sunday night after church. So it's probably you know, 9, 9.30, a uh, little, yeah, probably at least that. Um, it's pitch dark, but we're standing under the, the lamp that we had out there in the yard. And I remember talking with my brother and cousin about heaven. Uh, because that's what the topic of the sermon was about, and just being uh, awed at the thought of living forever and ever with God. A church was, was just built into the fabric of, of my childhood, and I think many of you would say the, uh, exactly uh, the same thing. And um, we're going to see that Psalm 48 in, uh, intends that to be the case. Um, let me just ask you tonight, um, how many institutions... Uh, would you say that you love? We don't generally tend to think of uh, institutions as objects of our affections. We think of people as objects or hobbies uh, or, or some, um, some experience that we, that we delight in. But, but people don't often speak of institutions. Maybe you'll say, you know, it, they build a product you like, Ford, Apple, Old Navy, whatever, and man, I love that company. But you don't really mean it the way that you love your wife or your friends or uh, or, or other people. Um, is there any institution that you love so much you'd be willing to die for it? Well, there ought to be. Jesus did. Right? The, the church should have that kind of affection from our, from our heart. That, that uh, we really, truly love the church of Jesus Christ. This, this psalm is a love song to the church about um, the beauty of Zion, the, the city of God. And it's written to inspire in us, to stir within us a deep love for the church. As you know, the, uh, the psalm here speaks of Zion, uh, which is a... Um, We've been very familiar to the people of the Old Testament. It's, it's another name for Jerusalem, the city of God, the capital, capital city of Judah. But this is not just a psalm about ancient, ancient Judah or Jerusalem. It's about, it's about an eternal city. It's about something that is, uh, will go on forever and ever. The, the, the people who belong to God, the, the city where God dwells. A kidner in his commentary says, Whatever the occasion that immediately inspired the psalm, we are conscious of a bigger setting than the hills of Judah. Zion is more than a local capital. The struggle concerns the whole earth, the whole span of time. The outlines of the Jerusalem above with its eternal foundations and walls are already coming into view. Uh, John Newton uh, sort of um, put this into him, as, as you know, glorious things of thee are spoken, Zion, city of our God. He whose word cannot be broken formed thee for his own abode. That, that Zion stands for the people of God, the city of God, the place where God dwells, and uh, that is now the New Testament church. We're going to look uh, tonight, first of all, at the God of Zion, and then the, the glory of Zion, and then the experience of the saints and the testimony of the saints. First, the, um, the God of Zion. Notice the psalm starts, Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised in the city of our God. Uh, the psalm really is about God more than it is about the church. It's about the church in a second-hand way. It's primarily about the greatness of the Lord, the King, the God who reigns uh, in Zion. Uh, the greatness and glory of Zion then is directly related to... It's, it, 
to the God who dwells there. It's only glorious because of the Lord. It was, an, it was a fairly impressive city, but it wasn't one of the seven wonders of the world, like you know Babylon with its hanging gardens. It wasn't, it, it wasn't Rome. It wasn't even close to Rome. Uh, Jerusalem was very, uh, you know, it was important, but mediocre town, city in uh, the ancient world. But here the writer speaks of it as though it is the, the, the most majestic, the most glorious uh, city in, in all the world. Well, that's because, you see, he's seen it um, as the place where God dwells. And God is the God of all the earth, and he's chosen Jerusalem to be his capital city of his universal reign. And so in verse 2, you, you read, His holy mountain, beautiful in elevation, Mount Zion in the far north, the city of the great king. Now there would be language here that would be conf- uh, maybe uh, confusing to uh, the original audience, at least pagans, because um, in the, the Hebrew, the word for north is Zaphon, and there was a mountain in the far north, Mount Zaphon. Everyone knows about Mount Zaphon. And the reason everyone knows about it, because it is the mount where Baal is said to dwell, the god of the land of Canaan. In those days, um, different uh, countries have their deities. Greeks and Romans have uh, their deities, and they live on Mount Olympus. And the Canaanites have their deity, and he lives on Mount Zephon, and Israel has their deity, and he lives on Mount Zion. That's the way the world is structured. But the, the, a Canaanite reader would say, well, why is this Hebrew writer getting confused? Why is he talking about Mount Zion uh, as this holy mountain in the far north, Mount Zephon? That's our mountain. Well, the answer is that um, the psalmist is showing that God, the God of Israel is not a local deity. He's, he's not just the God of Israel. The God of Israel is actually the God of all the earth. Every mountain is his mountain. And um, because there is one God, one maker of heaven and earth, there's one rock and refuge, one redeemer, only one, just one, and he is great and greatly to be praised. And that responsibility falls primarily to his people. When uh, the writer goes on and speaks of this city of the great king, we look at the glory of Zion, notice uh, there are things that are true of the city of God because of its connection, its relation to God. So it is a city of joy, first of all. His holy mountain is the joy of all the earth. Now that again would be confusing to a Canaanite reader because they're saying, we hate Mount Zion. We would love to wipe it off the face of the earth. What do you mean it's, his holy mountain is the joy of all the earth? Well, you see, the writer knows the deep secret of the world, that although uh, men in their fallen condition and, and the blinding effect of sin do not acknowledge or recognize the God of Israel as the one true God and the fountain of all joy, the fact is that is who he is and that is what he is. There is no joy in the world, lasting joy, apart from the God who created the world. And the writer is also looking forward to a time when this joy is going to expand from um, the people of God. It's, it's going to run into all the world. And so when the angels come to the little town of Bethlehem, what's their message? Joy to the world. Right? Joy to the world. A gospel is going to be proclaimed to all the world. 
A gospel that announces that the king has come. And he has come with with gifts in his hand, grace and pardon, redemption for all those who would call upon him. And what you see happening as the gospel expands, the joy of God is expanding all over the world and in every nation. As we read in the Westminster Confession of Faith, the the church doesn't belong to just one nation as it did largely in the Old Testament. Uh, There are are brothers and sisters in, in Jesus Christ in nearly every nation in the world. Praise God that that's true. The joy of God is spreading. And one day the joy of the Lord is going to cover the earth as the water covers the sea. One day uh, there will be nothing but a resounding um, psalm and hymn of praise and thanksgiving and worship. A thunderous anthem that's being lifted up to God as everything has been made new. That's coming. And the holy mountain of God will be the joy of all the earth. Secondly, it's a city of refuge. One of the primary sources of joy and reasons for praise in this psalm is that God is a refuge and a strength. Verse 3, within her citadels, God has made himself known as a fortress. There's echoes there of Psalm 46. God is in the midst of her. She shall not be moved. God will help her when morning dawns. If you remember when we talked about Psalm 46, what is it about the morning that requires God's help? Well, in those days, the morning is when the enemy is on the move. When, that's when the attack is going to come. We take the night off, but the next morning, the, 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 the enemy is going to be coming. And that's exactly what you see again in, in, in Psalm 48, verse 4. Behold, look, notice, the kings assembled, and they came on together. Here comes the horde. Maybe have a Lord of the Rings sort of imagery going on. Here comes the horde. The enemies of God have, are advancing to make war against God and his people. It's a common theme in the Psalms because the psalmist, you see, recognizes that's the context of the Christian experience. We are, we've been caught up into this great spiritual contest between the living God and, and the devil and all that oppose the living God. The purposes of God and, and the purposes of the devil. And, and the devil has allies, the world and the flesh. And they make war against us, against his people, against the church. But within the church, within her citadels, God has made himself known as a fortress. And in verses 5 through 7, we see what happens when the kings of this earth realize that God is in the midst of her. They shrink back in terror. Trembling seizes them like a woman in in labor. Uh, There's no avoiding or delaying the crisis that is about to come. They're, They're like men who are finding their ships battered by the east winds and about to sink, and there's no one to rescue. God does not apologize for being a terrifying God to those who are opposed to him. It is simply the truth. It's the glory of our God. And there are so many instances in the Old Testament where we see this sort of trembling take, take hold of people. If you remember when Joshua was going to go into the land, and the, uh, the Canaanites were in great fear. Trembling had laid hold of them. And who could blame them? I mean, what chance do they have? Uh, they don't have internet in those days, but word travels, and they've heard about the ten plagues. 
They've heard about this God of Israel who rescues a people who have nothing. They're a slave people. And, and this, this God, this deity, Yahweh, has rescued them by opening up the waters of the Red Sea. And then when Pharaoh tried to, uh, to, to follow after, the waters came crashing back down on them. And God destroyed every single last one. No survivors. And now they're coming your way. They're terrified. Well, our God, friends, is a mighty God. And his enemies have reason to fear. A God is a mighty God, not just in theory, but in real, in practice, in active warfare. And he exercises that might on our behalf. Within her citadels, God has made himself known as a fortress. I think one of the, the, uh, the things that will be astounding in heaven will be to, uh, if we're able to sort of read our spiritual history and see all the times where the devil came to ask for us just as he came and asked for Satan to sift him as wheat. And Jesus says, I prayed for you and you didn't fall. Think of all the times in your life where you were tempted to make shipwreck of your faith and God preserved you. And there will be times in your life you have, no, you have no idea the danger that you were in. And yet God protected you. God will allow us to stumble, but he will never, ever let us fall. On the rock of ages founded, what can shake thy sure repose? With salvation's walls surrounded, thou may smile at all thy foes. And that's precisely the experience of the saints. The experience of the saints we read in verse 8. As we have heard, so have we seen in the city of the Lord of hosts. In the city of our God, which God will establish forever. They had heard of God's greatness. They've heard of his strength. But now they've seen it. They've experienced it for themselves. And that's an essential thing for every Christian. It's one thing to hear about it, right? A friend tells you, or you read it in the Bible, or you hear about it in sermons. And then, and then there comes the time where you need... Where, to experience that truth. You've heard that Jesus was a friend for sinners, but then there's that time that the Holy Spirit came and showed you the truth of your sin and the, and the fact that you actually did deserve to be condemned. And then you cried out to the Lord and, and he heard you and he forgave you and what you had heard, you've now seen. I had the opportunity this past week to talk to several different people who are going through trials and and just noting um, and, and praising God for the peace that they were experiencing. And I asked them, why is that, you think? And they said, well, people are praying for us is the primary reason. But also, we've seen God so many times in the past, and they shared stories of, of times in the past where they had been through great trouble and trials, and, and God had preserved them and protected them and brought them through. What they had heard, they had seen and experienced. That's the experience of saints. Calvin writes this, As long as we have only the bare promises of God, His grace and salvation are as yet hidden in hope. But when these promises are actually performed, His grace and salvation are clearly manifested. One of the, one of the benefits of being, uh, becoming an older believer is that you, you get to uh, some perspective and some history with God. And you, you can begin to look back and see all the times you know, that, that God was, was faithful to you. The, the, the crisis or the tragedy that you were afraid was going to overwhelm you, it didn't overwhelm you. It wasn't fun, but, but God was faithful and it passed. It's exactly what we read in Isaiah 41 where you go through the waters and, and God says, I, I've got you. 
And, and the, 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 the flood is not going to sweep you away. The fire is not going to burn you. And, and you look back and you realize, you know, that's exactly true. That's, that's what happened. It didn't, it didn't sweep me away. It didn't overwhelm me. God has been faithful. He's not dealt with me as my sins deserve. He's dealt with me according to some mysterious plan of, of, to give kindness to me and show grace to me and to, and to build me up and to establish me, to bless me. Why would, why would God bless us the way he does? You, you simply could not look uh, back along your life and find the reasons because that's not where they are. They're in, they're in the, the sovereign, steadfast love of the Lord. And that's what we read about in verse 9, the testimony of the saints. We've thought on your steadfast love, O God, in the midst of your temple. And as your name, O God, so your praise reaches to the ends of the earth, your right hand is filled with righteousness. Let Mount Zion be glad. Let the daughters of Judah rejoice because of your judgments. We've thought on your steadfast love. Have you, have you done that recently? He's thought about all the ways that God, his love is, has never failed. And his love, not just his affection, but his, his kindness and grace, his compassion over and over and over, his blessings upon blessings. The steadfast love of the Lord, which never, never ceases. See, that's our reason to be glad. I think we tend to think because we're American that a, a gladness has to be attached to happy circumstances. And that um, the only way you could actually be glad is if uh, things are really going just really well. Um, but it's, it's not true. Uh, the steadfast love of the Lord is present regardless of the circumstances. Every reason that we have actually for, for being glad is found in God, whose praise reaches the ends of the earth, who's in the midst of his temple, whose hand is filled with righteousness. <clears throat> we have every reason to be glad in God. Matthew Henry says, where God, those who know, no, excuse me, Matthew Henry, where he is known, God, where God is known, he will be praised. For none deride God but those who are ignorant of him. If we know him, if we know his steadfast love, if we know his grace, if we know his righteousness, we'll be glad. And then there's a task for us, and that's how the psalm ends. It ends with some pointed applications. The first is this, take time to see and study the glory of God in his city. Walk about Zion. Go around her, number her towers, consider well her ramparts, go through her citadels, take the tour. Notice this, this thing that God is building, that God has established, his city, his people, his church. And all through the ages, you can, you can, we can share stories together about the attacks that the devil has made through false teaching, the attacks that he's made through persecution, the attacks that he's made through worldliness. And, and, and the devil's always attacking, never at rest. And yet the church is being built. The church is, is established and growing and expanding all over the globe. Take the tour, the psalmist says. Count the towers. Note the ramparts. And see the beauty and the mystery, the glory of the church. What is, what is the beauty of the church? Well, the, the fact is that the beauty of the church is Jesus. 
Without Jesus, it's just another religious organization. But, but you see, Jesus is the beauty of Zion. This is the, ch- the, the church that's precious and beautiful in the sight of God because it's claimed by Jesus, given to Jesus to be his very own possession, purchased with his blood, loved by Christ, robed in the righteousness of Christ. And one day you see all that is false and all that is weak and frail and sinful, all that's going to fall off. And what you're going to see is the church in its truth, the beauty of of the church as Jesus sees it. The church in its perfected condition. But, but, but the bones of that reality are already there. You see it in the faith of, of, of people who are suffering. You see it in, in the little children who believe in God with a vast confidence. You see it as people confess their sin in truth. You see it as people humble themselves and ask for forgiveness of each other and of the Lord. And as they embrace each other and show hospitality. But the beauty is all, it's all Jesus. What's the joy of Zion? Jesus is the joy of Zion. Jesus is the joy of Zion. That we are his and he is ours. That he loved us and he gave his life for us. And now he reigns on our behalf and he knows our name and he'll never, ever let us go. Jesus is the strength of and security of Zion. He's the one who promises to hold us fast. He's never, ever lost a single soul. He's the one to whom we can run when, when, the, um, when the world, the flesh, and the devil are accusing and attacking. You can run to Jesus. You can abide in him. You can hide in him. He's the rock of ages. Jesus, friends, is the beauty and the strength and the joy and security of the church. And so we love the church because we love him. And we love the church as a way of loving him. The psalmist secondly says, tell this to your children. Why does he want us to study the glory of Zion? That you may tell the next generation that this is God. Our God. Forever and ever. God, friends, is passionate about communicating his glory and his goodness and all of his works and saving acts. He wants that communicated to the next generation. We do not have 300 people, at uh, children at Harvest Church by accident. That is a, a gift that God has given to us, but there is an obligation that comes with that gift. That it is essential that we tell our children in the context of the church that this is God, the God who's pledged himself to the church, the God who owns the church as his, bought it with his blood, indwells it with his Holy Spirit, preserves it throughout uh, all the ages, who fulfills his promises here. We need, we need our children to know that, 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 that the God of the Bible is the God of Zion. And he's our God, that that Christianity is not just an individual faith that you have in Jesus. It is a shared faith you have in Christ with all of Christ's people. That when people think about God, when they think about Jesus, they should think about, when our little children think about these things, they should think about Sunday nights in worship with God's people. And Sunday mornings coming together to praise him with all their friends and, and, and and the other families, that this is our God as well as my God. 
Studies show that children are leaving the church in mass, and I wonder if it's because the, the, the God that they heard of wasn't the, maybe wasn't the God of Zion. And they, weren't, they didn't learn the inestimable value and beauty of the church because it's Jesus' church. And uh, the psalmist calls us then, tell it to your children. This is, this, this is God, boys and girls. This is God, the God who, who died for the church, who died for the people you worship with, the God who's, who promises to guide us forever. And that's the final application, to trust him. You see, we can't confess the greatness of God. We can't, we can't rejoice in God as king unless we actually trust him. He will guide us forever. Our boys and girls need to see that. And this, this guiding, it doesn't mean that God will give us the life that we desire here and now, but it does mean that he will give us the, the life that best prepares us for eternity. He will guide us forever, not just to the grave. He leads us right through the grave and into eternity, into the presence of God. That's what Jesus promised. I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. I'm going to prepare a place for you, and I'm coming again to get you. He said that to his church, to his bride. Friend, let me just ask you tonight, do you belong to the church of Jesus Christ? Do you, do you, have you professed your faith in the Lord Jesus? Have you submitted yourself to his loving, sovereign authority as the Lord and head of the church by professing that faith before the congregation? Because if you haven't, you see, then this beautiful church, is, it, it stands, but you stand outside of it. There's a way to come into the city of God, and that is by faith in Jesus Christ. There's a way to come into this wonderful citadel where the joy and the, and the, and the sovereign power of God are at work on your behalf, and that is to come to Christ and to come to his church. Do you, have you done that? And if you've done that, then would you just consider how blessed you are? We have so many things going on in our life and things that are going to happen this week and some that we're looking forward to and some we're dreading and some we know nothing about. And we let those things sort of determine our attitude, our focus, our joy. Would you, would you maybe just take a moment to think about the steadfast love of the Lord and, and what a privilege it is to belong to the church? How in the world did you get in here? By the sovereign kindness of God who knew you from eternity past, named you personally, and brought you to faith, and gave you to his church to be protected and shepherded and guided and fed until you see Jesus face to face. Savior, if of Zion's city, I through grace a member am, let the world deride or pity. I will glory in thy name. Fading is the worldling's pleasure, all its boasted pomp, all its show. Solid joy and lasting treasures, none but Zion's children now. I pray that we do. Amen. Oh God in heaven, I thank you so much for Jesus. I thank you that he loves his church because it is the creation of his hand. It is the fruit of his labor. It is where he dwells by his Holy Spirit. It is his bride whom he is cleansing and washing and adorning with jewels of grace to be presented to himself on the last day. And oh God, I thank you that you've allowed us 
You've called us. You've made us members of the church of Jesus Christ. Lord, I pray for anyone here tonight who is not a member of the church, that they would have a deep hunger to belong to this glorious communion of people who have sinned in so many ways and yet are loved in infinite ways. I pray, Lord, you'd give saving faith tonight. I pray that we would see, Lord, the churches filled as people come at the response to the gospel call and are saved. And Lord, for those of us who have maybe been members of the church all of our life, I pray that we would cherish the privilege that's ours, a gift of pure sovereign grace. May, Lord, um, the praise of God resound from this place and from our lips, not only when we gather together, but in our homes, on our knees by our beds. Lord, as we gather as families to worship, great is the Lord and greatly to be praised in the city of our God. So, Lord, uh, we ask that you would just inscribe these truths in our hearts to the praise of our Savior. In Jesus' name, amen.